With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 47th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. Then you'll be notified just as soon as a new show is available. You know, I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. I really love seeing all the countries and cities on my listeners report. You know, it's really exciting for me to see. And in this past week, I had over 100 more listeners in Moldova, in addition to a large number of new listeners tuning in from Russia and Vietnam. And in the U.S., I have a lot of new listeners tuning in from Redmond, Washington, New York City, Piscataway, New Jersey, and Conway, Arkansas areas plus many other places on the map, which I look at when I go through the listeners' reports. It's really fascinating. Now, these numbers reflect listeners for my show website based on the general location that's determined through a portion of the IP addresses of those visiting the site. You know, I don't know the listener numbers for all those apps I mentioned earlier, and I want to get some time to figure that out. But welcome, and thanks so much for all of you for tuning in. Now, if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And certainly, if you need help with information security or privacy, just let me know. And keep all that feedback and all your questions coming in. I really love getting all of them. My December Privacy Professor Tips message was published on November 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not please sign up for them. I provide them free ever since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, on to my tip for the week. So this has been an interesting month. This month, December, I've had high school students from Florida, Pennsylvania, and Illinois get in touch with me and all separately. And they each asked me to be interviewed by them for the annual C-SPAN student cam competition. And they each had different 
security and privacy topics. Now, what I thought was interesting was during one of the interviews, I was explaining the need to secure home Wi-Fi networks. And the student interviewing me said, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't have anything on my home Wi-Fi network that anyone would want. I have nothing to hide. So then (laughs) that gave me a great opportunity, right? So then I discussed how Wi-Fi networks are not just targeted for the data that can be accessed within them, but they can also be used as pathways to launch attacks on others. And then those attackers can attribute the attack to that home Wi-Fi network as being the source of the attack. Then um, it can also be used when intruders get onto your Wi-Fi network to plant bots on your home Wi-Fi network. And what they do is the attackers plant these bots all over on lots of different um, Wi-Fi networks and other types of networks. And then at a certain point in time, they're going to launch a huge denial of service attack against some target. And this has happened many times before. But it makes then basically your home Wi-Fi network part of that attack. Also, This is kind of scary, too. Unsecured Wi-Fi networks are also often used to store various types of digital data, such as bootleg copies of software or videos, uh, child porn, and other types of illegal data. So then all of that data could be located on your home network and you wouldn't know it until maybe somebody came knocking on your door asking you why you have that stuff in your network. Well, the student interviewed who was interviewing me and I was discussing this with, he was quiet for a while after I explained these different things. And he said, wow, I never realized that could be done. That's really nasty. So here's my tip for the week. Take some time over the holidays or just whenever you can find uh, some a few hours should be enough to do it for your home Wi-Fi network. But go in and look at your Wi-Fi network security settings and also where you work. If you have not done an audit or security assessment in the past six months or more, do one. You need to make sure that you do one at your business, at your government agency, for your schools. Make sure that your Wi-Fi network security and privacy settings are appropriate and that they aren't accidentally set at a point where you could allow intruders in and do some of these nasty things. Make sure you aren't leaving holes into your Wi-Fi network. Um, You don't want them to do bad things to or from your network. So now on to our show topic. You know, every day I see at least one new report or news item about student privacy or teacher privacy problems or issues. So I want to just quickly give you just a few recent examples. So in late November, a Manchester, New Hampshire school board member posted a student's name and some other confidential personal information of that student to a public social media site, likely a violation of the U.S. Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or better known as its acronym FERPA. Another example, in November, there was a uh, commentary in a publication 
that was located in Lockport, New York. And the commentary indicated that the Lockport, New York schools are now equipped with 300 high-tech facial recognition surveillance cameras that cost around $2.7 million. And the New York State Department of Education warned the district officials not to bring that system online yet because they felt that there were some serious privacy problems of the, quote, most intrusive surveillance system ever introduced in any school in the nation, end quote. Another example, education technology companies, you know, IBM and Apple and all the others, so many of them are providing free technology and free software to schools. And in many instances, they have been found mining and selling the data about the students and teachers using them. So basically, they're taking that data and making more money than they can make from actually just selling the tech or the software outright itself to the schools. Another example, there's been multiple reports of racial and ethnic and religious profiling in elementary and secondary schools and universities that have been published throughout the year. And usually they are being done using the closed circuit TVs within the school buildings, but also using and monitoring the social media sites. And often it's done in the name of safety. Now, throughout 2018, as some schools that required, you probably read this in some news reports, but some schools required clear backpacks and book bags in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting massacre that happened in Parkland, Florida. Well, a lot of those that did that right after that horrible event stopped doing that then due to privacy concerns. But yet, I did a quick check this morning, and there's still other schools, such as in North Carolina and Texas and Florida, that are just now requiring that type of clear view into what the students are carrying, um, despite the privacy concerns. And again, it's in the name of safety. And certainly, our schools do need to be safe, but balancing safety with privacy is often a challenge. Certainly, the schools are typically strapped for money and funding, but you know, balancing the need for school technology and other supplies with the monetization of the students' and teachers' personal data has to be considered before you start using them. There's really no such thing as free when personal data is used as the currency to obtain that type of technology. Also, just think about it. Um, If you're forfeiting privacy in the name of safety, this can also have significant impacts on just the learning environment alone. Now, In my November 6th show, I spoke with Lainey Hameson and Marla Kilfoyle about the new educator toolkit for teacher and student privacy that they helped to create, which was released in October of this year, 2018. And I'm so happy to have as my guest today another key member of that development team for the new privacy toolkit to continue this important conversation about privacy in schools for students and for teachers. So today I'm being joined by Randy Weingarten, 
president of the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT, which is a union of 1.7 million professionals. Now, Randy was elected in 2008 following 12 years as president of New York City's United Federation of Teachers and six years as a teacher at Clara Barton High School. Ms. Weingarten has spearheaded the development of Share My Lesson, the largest free collection of educational resources created by a union for um, educators and also for parents. Ms. Weingarten and the uh, the AFT lead a partnership to transform McDowell County, West Virginia, which which is one of the poorest counties in the United States through efforts to improve the quality of education. Um, So, you know, I'm so happy to have Randy. I have so much more about her on the bio that you'll see that accompanies this show. So, Randy, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for doing all of this about privacy. I mean, you're you're teaching people a lot um, in every single show, and I just it's been just wonderful to listen to your introduction for the last eight minutes. So, really, really, thank you. Oh well, thanks. Well, I'm looking forward to having everyone listening learn a lot more too about student and privacy. Uh, and teacher privacy in the school system. So what led to your concern with student and teacher privacy? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we actually did a resolution in 2012 um, on digital learning in the pre-K through 12 space because mm-hmm. we had always thought that FERPA, which you referred to, F-E-R-P-A, which was the kind of the privacy law, that's the major federal law that governor governs when student information can be disclosed. And then we also thought that, you know, school districts um, would actually dis- would actually maintain and protect um, privacy of, you know, of their employees, meaning not giving out phone numbers and not giving out addresses. You know, we knew that that people would know generally what school teachers made, but, you know, social security numbers, addresses, phone numbers, and this is all kind of in the dark age before you had facial recognition, before you had all, I shouldn't say the dark age, I should say the dinosaur age of where you didn't have facial recognition, you didn't have um, everyone on um, email, you didn't have other kinds of recognition, you didn't have um, you know, finger um, recognition. You didn't have um, all of these different ways to to basically profile or mine data. And so I think in the last five years, we've started becoming very vigilant on the oh so many ways that um, companies or hackers can actually mine data can actually breach data, can actually take data. And so we've become pretty concerned about it. But separate and apart from that, you talked about Share My Lesson. We ourselves made a value um, statement about Share My Lesson um, when we started it, which was that we would never sell teacher data and we would actually never collect more data than teachers actually wanted us to have. So mostly that that we would not put 
every single one of our members on Share My Lesson that that if they wanted to be on it, they had to voluntarily be on it and be on that platform. And they could give us as much information as they wanted, as limited as name and, you know, just place where they taught. Um, and that could even be state, and as much as the other pedigree information, but that we would never sell it, and we would never use it in a way that um, that jeopardized them. And so that you know, we learned how important it was to be really, really, really mindful, even when we had a benefit of making sure that people couldn't have access to our members' data, um, but. You know, but so that's that's all that that's even before you had, you know, the tech companies trying to mine kids data and teachers data and using testing and using other correlative stuff and algorithmic stuff, um, which has brought us to a whole nother um, platform and a whole nother line. Well, you know, based on what you said, I love that you're giving them choices. So did you hear back from the the folks using then um, this new offering that you had? Like, did you have them say thank you for not requiring me to give more? Or did you see a lot of them choosing to uh, limit what they gave a lot more maybe than you had expected? Um, I actually expected um, people to give us as limited an amount as they were allowed mm-hmm. until they trusted the the platform. Mm. And we, we had one, you know, we, we did actually have someone who on Twitter, I forget who it was now, you know, someone basically challenged me that, you know, were we actually protecting people's privacy? And I said, look, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's going to be, if people trust, people will either have to trust us or not. You know, I can say we're protecting people's privacy and we do everything we can to make sure that our data system is not penetrable. You know, there, there are hackers that try to get into the AFT data system all the time. So mm. we try to make sure that it's not penetrable patrol. We try to make sure it's not breachable because, you know, we, we have an obligation also to protect people's privacy. So, you know, when you see like the Marriott data breach that just mm-hmm. happened or a bank data breach, we also happen to have a benefit that we've bought for every single one of our members that if there is a data breach, how they can maintain their credit and and, and things like that. So, so we're, all I'm saying is that from every which way, we're trying to be really mindful that um, we have an obligation that when we have the pedigree information of people, their names, their social security numbers, their addresses, their phone numbers, that we have to really respect that and protect that um, because, you know, the, that that's part and parcel of, of, of who people are. And mm-hmm. I think that that... Both kids and, I mean, and this is one of the reasons why I love the um, BATS Privacy Toolkit, because I think mm-hmm. that teachers and parents and particular kids, they have no idea when they start, you know, going into an app or mm-hmm. um, putting down all of their information that that company now has it forever. So mm-hmm. they may have wanted like, you know, they may want to get that iTunes song Desperately. Okay, Apple has that information forever. Um, And so I think that part of what we have to do, separate and apart 
from kind of the role of tech companies and how they use data and how they mine and how they use it for profit, separate and apart from that, which I'm sure we'll get to. We, those of us who collect people's information because there are members or there are students, we have to try to be as careful as we can because we are fiduciaries of that information to try to protect it, to try to make sure our systems protect it from, you know, those who fish, those who mine, those who profile, those who, you know, try to use it, try to use the data for either, you know, hacking purposes, nefarious purposes, profit purposes, mm-hmm. or even good purposes. Oh, yeah. So, gosh, in a an organization with 1.7 million members um, of all educators, uh, you're probably hearing about privacy breaches, right? I mean, what oh, yeah. kind of... What type of privacy breaches or problems have you heard about or actually seen that uh, could have been prevented, do you think? Well, the first thing is, you know, all those credit card companies and banks or like the Marriott, all Mm -hmm. those privacy breaches, you know, it takes people's financial information. So that's part of the reason why we as a union um, now have this um, protection against, uh, you know, credit card fraud um, as one of the member benefits. Because Mm -hmm. we kept saying, yes, it's really important to alert people. They, you know, they'll get like if like um, uh, with the Marriott breach or with one of the bank breaches, you know, they'll get a year of of, um, surveillance by, you know, one of the debt companies. But, Mm -hmm. But frankly... We wanted to make sure that we could help protect people. So, so we're so you see it from that perspective. But in terms of the school perspective, you also see it from um, a couple of things. Like when um, I the like years ago, um, Pearson um, went out and they 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 found that a student mentioned um, something on a park test in some social media and they actually called the police or called the school system and, um, and, and the parent um, and tried to get the kid suspended because the kid had revealed something about the park test on social media. Now that, was something that we went after um, um, very vocally and very strongly because how dare you spy on kids? You know, and we also at that moment in time went after Pearson and other ones of these companies because that was, this is about three or four years ago, because, mm-hmm. you know, the testing was so, they, they, they were so, they wanted to be, oh, 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 so careful with test security because they wanted to use these test questions again. So mm-hmm. they would not let teachers actually talk to each other or talk to parents about what the test questions were. So how do you actually gauge the progress of kids? How do you evaluate the test if everything is a state secret? And and the reason they did this 
um, was because they wanted to use these questions again. So they didn't want anybody talking about these questions. And it was just, and, 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 and so they would say to teachers, you cannot say anything about these tests. And if you do, you are subject to discipline. Like what they said to this kid, you cannot say anything about this test and we're going to spy on your social networks to see if you have. And that was just crazy making, Mm -hmm. but it was because these folks, but Pearson and others, you know, didn't want to spend the money on a new, you know, um, you know, set of questions. So they created test security that was antithetical to, of course, teachers and kids are going to speak about the test. Of course, they're going to speak about questions afterwards. Of course, they're going to say, did this, was this a reflection of what we actually talked about? And um, was this a reflection of what I taught? And, and on and on and on. And obviously, if tests are supposed to gauge and guide where you are in terms of instruction, of course, you're going to talk about them. So that was... That was one of the kind of private. That was one of the kind of issues we saw with this kind of um, with 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 um, with technology and and uh, and privacy. But but and that was because they wanted to make a profit and they wanted to make as much of a profit as they can. The other big 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 area um, is the area of profiteering. That um, that that testing companies and curriculum companies, you know, they basically use students and student data as a petri dish, where mm-hmm. they actually just think about, okay, these are the the you know where where they basically say, okay, this is a um, a focus group, and they use it to build their new curriculum and they use it to build their new testing, and they use it. As you know, as as a way of gathering data, and they have to tell teachers and parents that 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 they're going to be using that data collectively to advance their own you know profits. And I think that they have to tell people that. And then the mm-hmm. third thing they do is you know all of a sudden you have you know all of a sudden in your Facebook page or all of a sudden in your Twitter field or all of a sudden in your emails you're going to get you know, this advertisement from X or Y or Z because they've seen the kind of stuff that you teach and they say, oh, Randy Weingarten is a high school social studies teacher. She must be interested in this civics curriculum. Why don't we send her an email and see if she's interested in that? So the third area is that people send you know, try to advertise and sell their products based upon the information they have, the micro-targeting they have. Well, it's such a wide range of things too, right? I mean, like you said, for for marketing and for using it for analysis purposes and to use it for, you know, the safety, which we haven't even got into yet. But I'm intrigued by, um, you know, talking about these testing types of organizations. And for my listeners who aren't aware, Pearson is a company that creates um, educational curriculum in addition to testing types of uh, products and so on. But it it kind of really bothers me, too. I I come from also being an educator, first uh, 7th or 12th grade math and computing, and then for master's degree students. And, you know, if they're going to do testing to try to say you, you can't talk about it afterwards, I mean, my gosh, have they looked at history and seen how people love to talk about what they are learning and what they are being tested over? It just seems like a, a really lazy way 
um, to try to approach having these types of standardized tests right. created to say we're going to reuse it. Um, we have a break coming up here right now that we need to take, Randy. But I do. Uh, I look forward to asking you several more questions uh, about some of these experiences that you've had and then get into that privacy toolkit. But right now, it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT about teacher and student privacy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, about teacher and student privacy. So, you know, um, Randy, we have the U.S. Federal Department of Education. So you would think that they should be doing something about privacy, right? With all these privacy issues and risks and problems, what is the the U.S. Federal Department of Education doing or doing wrong or doing right with regard to privacy that puts 
student and teacher privacy at risk or that helps to protect it? So there's a whole bunch of laws that Mm -hmm. um, the feds have, including FERPA, as I said, and including um, a few others, uh, the, you know, the, um, the law governing special needs children has privacy attached to it. There are other laws that like PPRA and COPPA, you know, we only speak in mnemonics in terms of um, our world um, mm-hmm. that protects minor children. But um, we have a secretary of education that actually does not believe in enforcing any of these laws in a way that helps the um uh, people that are supposed to be protected. Now, part of it is I think that she's not competent um, because I think that some of these things she actually would want to protect. But um, you can see from the last two years that she's been there that there's not a lot of competence. But part of it ideologically is that when there is an issue between a for-profit company or privatization to make a buck versus um, a student um, who may be aggrieved, um, this particular Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has always sided with a for-profit company. And that's why you see the, you know, people who have debt, student debt, the loan mm-hmm. servicers have always been sided with rather than the people who have student debt. And we're seeing that in terms of a lot of the civil rights enforcement as well. We have not seen any new initiatives on their part to deal with the legions of technology that are now um, in schools. And in fact, we're starting we're starting to see a whole bunch of of um, states that have a lot of fraud and misrepresentations that have happened as well. For example, ECOT, um, which was um, a virtual charter school in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, lost, um, fleeced the taxpayers by millions of dollars, and it was a big issue in the last Ohio gubernatorial race. And I think part of the problem is that Betsy DeVos has been an investor in some of these technology companies like K-12 Inc., which is a for-profit virtual charter school operator, which is now Today, or this week, in fact, they have said that uh, they are um, actually closing up their K-12 schools and opening um, uh, career tech ed schools. It's hard to Hmm. imagine how you could actually be a virtual career tech ed school. Like, how are you going to teach welding um, through a computer? But, you know, I digress. So, (laughs) I don't see what they've done, although there are states that have been pretty good on this. Like, for example, California in 2014 passed two state information protection laws that were attempting to legislate the permissible activities of school service providers in the digital age. And many states Mm -hmm. have used that as a model. So they would at least say, look, you tech company, this is the data you can take or this is permissible and this is not. This needs to be protected 
as, you know, a school district that you cannot let the data company or the digital company have this information, but you can let them have this information. Or if they have the information that they're not supposed to have, like, for example, social security number, Mm -hmm. um, or maybe even, you know, um, information on ethnicity or, um, you know, finances or things like that then mm-hmm. you can't use them or you can't sell them. So California did something. And, and so there are a lot of states that have modeled um, after California. And, you know. Well, does the federal, does the Department of Education then, do they come in? Is there anything that they have that supersedes what the, the states are doing then? I mean, are there any uh, risky from a privacy standpoint, any types of information then that you see that are required to be shared with the Department of Education that maybe at the state level they're saying, no, you, you can't share this because it's um, a privacy risk that still is compelling states or schools within states who want to get the federal funding from yeah. uh, them. I mean, are any of That's the things- a really good question. So look, the federal, until this last administration, until the administration we now have, I would have said, um, look, the feds for civil rights purposes, you know, have a right to collect all sorts of data. And Mm -hmm. there's been rules and regulations on what data they collect and how they collect it and who's the end users and who can use it. And that's a lot of that is contained in FERPA. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But with this particular education department, um, I have real issues of trust about what they will do. And and I'll give you another example that's not in education, but take um, the, um, at the beginning of the president's term, at, at uh, President Trump's term, he was talking a blue blaze about um, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. It, in fact, the only real voter fraud that we've had in the last two years is actually um, something that we're seeing in North Carolina right now, where some Republican operative actually seemed to have voted absentee ballots. But again, that seems to be the only real voter fraud. It seems like our problem in America is that not enough people vote. Having said that, he started a voter fraud commission and he put the then Secretary of State from Missouri, the head of it, who you know was someone who was a very big Trump acolyte. Secretaries of state, they they finally disbanded the commission because secretaries of state around the country refused to give the federal government their voter files and refused to give them that data, basically saying, we don't trust you um, with this information. We don't trust what you would do with this information. And so they had to, you know, because voting and voter data is something that is very sacrosanct. The secretaries of state all throughout the country, meaning the 50 secretaries of state that are elected basically throughout the country, they said, we don't trust you with that kind of data. So, you know, so we've seen that kind of situation already in the last two years, but there's a lot of people that don't trust the Department of Education with it, yet for federal purposes, whether it's Title I or whether it's IDEA or whether it's Medicaid reimbursement, you have to give the federal government that kind of data because, you know, that's part of accountability. So we, you know, I'm frankly glad 
that there's now checks, you know, there's now a Democratic Congress because there will be some checks and balances now in this process. The other problem, which is really interesting, is that you have this great California law now. You have a couple of other states that are doing it. The federal government has started to and use very aggressively preemption that basically is saying to the states, no, 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 you can't protect further than what we do. And mm. so that's going to be, they're not doing it yet in terms of this privacy data, but they're doing it in the student um, loan area where we've mm. seen, for example, an entity like Navient, who's a student loan servicer, actually misrepresenting to people what the status of their loan is or that they could get into public service loan forgiveness, actually misrepresenting, not not disclosing, but really misrepresenting. And now the Department of Education is saying, no, you can't sue on their behalf because that's preempted by federal law. So we're starting to see a little bit of that. What's, what's also interesting, though, something I haven't raised yet, is that the federal government, like right after... Um, there was a big, big, big um, state uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that basically curbed the rights of um, people within labor unions. Um, that was called the Janus case. Mm-hmm. And as soon, literally within 24 hours of that case, every single school teacher in like 10 states got an email on their school email from one of these anti-union groups saying, you can drop your union, you can drop your union, like saying, we're really giving you a service public. And if I, look, that is so totally against policy in so many of these places. Like we don't, we never, we we try to almost, I mean, I, I have advised our local leaders all throughout the country Try never, 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 never to use school email. Don't use school email Mm -hmm. for union business. Try to have people's private emails or if they have a union email, but we are not using school emails for union business. And here you have um, these anti-union characters actually getting a hold of every school teacher's email. It so backfired on them. People were like, what are you doing? How did you invade my privacy? How did you get this email? How dare you actually do this to me on school time? But that's what there's. So so there's a lot of lines that have been crossed here. And that's and 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 again, it goes back to as a result, what do we do to just make sure people know what their rights are and mm-hmm. know what information they have to give and how that information is supposed to be protected. Because, you know, there's too many places that are actually not protecting their rights. So where did they get all of those emails uh, from? You're going to have to ask Mackinac Center where they, oh, they say okay. they say They say they got it by lawful means, but there's no way... Well. That any of these folks that to get there's you know so I'm sure that somebody sold them the list somewhere or they hacked it um, mm-hmm. because there's no way that every single school district in the state of New York um, who now actually have a law that or an executive order that stops um, these groups from getting it how um, how they um, got all this information they would have had mm-hmm. to get it from either um, uh, school districts, which have, you know, who, which basically have to be really, really neutral in this regard, 
or um, they were able to hack it, or they were able to buy it from somewhere. But the 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 issue is if that that use um, was actually um, certainly um, violated school board policy right. in so many districts. And frankly, if I had done it as the teachers union or as the nurse union and written to every single employee on their school email, I certainly would have had at least my knuckles wrapped. Yeah. Even though we don't believe in corporal punishment. Right, right. Well, I want to ask you about um, the tension. There's, There's been long tension between balancing school safety with student and teacher privacy. And right. so in the past two years, uh, two to four years, maybe more than that, but it seems like really a lot more here recently, a lot more requirements for students like to use those clear backpacks that I talked about it at the beginning of the show. Um, but, you know, it seems like what so much is being done at the local levels by schools is a reaction to let's do something, but even if it does violate privacy, I mean, what are your thoughts on balancing safety with privacy? You mean, as opposed to actually passing some sensible gun laws, which, you know, so I think, I think that actually, Rebecca, that actually, you know, goes back a few years. I mean, think about 9-11. And think about the laws that were passed in the United States post 9-11 as to what the kind of reasonable expectation under the Fourth Amendment of privacy is versus what the security and the safety interests are. And there has been, and I go back to that because there is always, there's been this tension for a long time. Now, we have had more domestic terrorism in the United States then, I mean, think about what just happened in terms of Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Think about what happened in Parkland. Think about what happened in um, Pulse Nightclub. Think about what happened in, um, in um, the uh, church in, South, in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we've had a lot of these horrible um, uh, uh, murders by um, by very um, misguided people, you know, with, um, with, and gun violence. And so it feels like the clear backpacks and things like that um, are not really um, addressing the root causes of what the issues are. Yes, we have to make sure that um, kids are safe. And we have fought very hard against having more weapons in schools. If, if a community wants to have a trained secure, you know, a security officer that's trained to, you know, utilize arms, that's one thing. But we have fought against teachers being armed with guns. We've fought against um, having more guns in schools. We fought for schools being you know, a safe sanctuary, not armed fortresses. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of fear um, that parents have. And mm-hmm. if you've gone through and if your kid has been, um, you know, in, in a school district or a school where this horrible insanity, depravity has happened, you know, there's a lot less tolerance for privacy 
and a lot heightened awareness for safety. And so these are the kind of decisions that have to be made on a community by community level. But I do think that the clear backpacks and people being able to see tampons and people being able to see other stuff that really is stuff that that kids have a right to have a reasonable expectation Mm -hmm. of privacy, I think that's important. I think we can Mm -hmm. address things a lot better with things like more counselors in a school. Um, We can have things like um, the red flag laws, which, you know, you can get a special order of protection if you're a cop or a teacher or a family member, if you, you know, have a real concern about, you know, a child or an adult. But um, and we could have sensible gun laws. And then, you know, you could have stuff on the perimeter like, you know, even though, um, you know, my my school had them when I taught in 1991 to 1997, Clara Barton High School, metal mm-hmm. detectors, things like that. I mean, you can have some of that kind of hardware. You can have egress, ingress. You can have lock doors. Um, we have a lot of active shooter drills. Um, this has become a mainstay, a part of life for kids right now. But I do think that these kind of clear backpacks and really invading all kids' privacy, uh, I, I think that that's really tough. And I mm-hmm. think we should be revisiting that issue and give kids back some of their privacy. I think it's really important for their dignity. And I think, um, you know, but I understand the impulse. Um, in places like Parkland, where people mm-hmm. were scared to death. But we mm-hmm. got to be careful not to make schools these kind of fortresses. Right, right. Well, you know, I want to kind of relate that now to the Educator Toolkit for Teacher and Student Privacy. So you are, you are a major part of that. Does that get into those types of things, too? Does, does that toolkit help to balance, you know, provide guidance or... Um, help in some way to balance uh, safety with privacy or uh, what's some of the things that you see that the toolkit helps schools with uh, with regard to what we've been talking about so far? Well, what the, what the toolkit does is a couple of things. Number mm-hmm. one, it gives people information in plain English, meaning you can actually read a page of it or two pages of it once or twice, and understand that you have rights or that your kids have rights and what those rights are and where they're located. So it kind of, it gives people information. And secondly, it gives people the questions to ask and the places and, 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 and ideas in terms of advocacy. So it gives you a sense of what the lay of the land is and what kind of rights you have, and what more to do to actually protect one's privacy. So I think that that is really important. And there's been a lot of downloads since October, about 4,000 or so. And, um, you know, and people, you know, we're we're getting it out slowly. Um, I'm really, really grateful to the bats and to people like Lainey Hameson and to others who who have really understood from, you know, for years that privacy is something that we have to protect. It is something that is part of dignity for a person and that they should, just like the, you know, earlier in the conversation, 
that, that when you have data on people, you have a special responsibility to hold that data close and to not let it get in the hands, you know, to, to, not get, to, to hold it for the intended purposes and mm-hmm. to make sure that people trust you. But I do think it sheds light on the important conversation of, you know, what the laws are right now. And the second thing it does, you know, and where you can advocate. And the second thing it does is it actually um, talks about, you know, technology and public education and what um, the what the guardrails should be. And, and mm-hmm. the kind of latitude that people have to basically say, no tech company you don't get to have facial recognition features. That's not really a right that you have under law. And if you want that, maybe you have to have express permission, not from just the school district, but from parents. Mm, definitely. Well, I mean, just, just think about just it. Just as an example, you know, mm-hmm. as an, just a, you know, does a school, maybe the school, school district policy, Maybe the school has the right to have, you know, fingerprints of kids or facial recognition features, things like that. But you tech company that is actually engaged with the school and have a contract with the school, no, you don't have that right to have that. And so parents need to know that. Teachers need to know that. That's just one of any number of examples that 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 um, this toolkit. Um, gives parents and gives teachers. And I think it's a really, really, really important service. And I'm grateful to the BATS for doing it. And I'm glad we could have, we had a little role in helping them. You know, talking about privacy too, and the the tech companies and the surveillance. Remember uh, long ago, at least when I was little, when teachers wanted to make an impact, they'd say, that's going to go on your permanent record. And of course, before all the computers were used in the schools, it was like, yeah, right, permanent record is a piece of paper in a file cabinet that's probably going to be thrown away someday. But today, that's literally true. I mean, what's being collected but from, you know, through technology with data about students when they're in preschool up through high school and then college, that that actually does become a part of their their permanent life record um, if that data is not protected and if it starts being shared with many other different entities. It can come back to haunt them when they're trying to, you know, get jobs or also get loans. Um, it, it really does have a huge impact that I don't think a lot of of schools maybe or a lot of people who want to get that data realize the impact down the road that it can have. I don't I don't think people know and realize that in this um, in this internet world, you know, I I have a little adage which is if you don't want to see it on the front page of the New York Post, don't say it or don't write it. Um, you know, and don't, um, but because anything that, that you say or write or do, um, for public consumption is going to be public and is going to, um, um, be with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, but for kids and for parents of kids, there are certain things that we need as teachers. Like if a kid has some special needs we need mm-hmm. to know that in order to help a child. But that is not for public consumption. You know, right. those, those records need to be protected. And so we have to do a lot better 
about what is the reasonable expectation of privacy and what are the guardrails, you know, up and down the line. And this is a complex work and there's lots of balances. But I think we, sh- you know, the, the issues like hacking, um, marketing, profits, one has to actually be really careful that, um, that people's privacy data is not used for marketing. People's privacy data, people's data is not used for profiteering. There's clearly issues around um, safety, the, you mm-hmm. know, the, the balancing. But, you know, there has to be a lot more deference and respect to people's mm-hmm. zones of privacy. And it is something that I think we're going to, um, that we face more and more challenges about that in this world of, you know, recognition, biological recognition features in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but we who have some responsibility as the guardians of people's personal information, we have to try our best to to be fiduciaries of that. Definitely. Well, you know, believe it or not, we're almost out of time here. But before we go, as the last thing you provide to our listeners, can you let the listeners know where they can download the toolkit if they're interested in it? Um, it is on the BATS website. So BATS actually stands for... I know that we don't try we try not to curse badass <laughs> teachers um, but but just go to the b a you know just google b a t s bats privacy um, toolkit toolkit okay great so you could you could you could you could do badassteachers.org or just google bats privacy toolkit and you will get it great Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it, Randy. It's my pleasure. And Rebecca, thank you so much for doing these, um, as I said at the beginning, for doing this work. It's really, really important. Thank you for for this and and thank you to Voice of America. Yeah, thank you so much. So today we've been talking about school and teacher privacy with Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT. Now, if any of you have topics to suggest that I cover, please send me a note and let me know. Um, And also, in the days and weeks ahead, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job, go to school, and do your daily work, or um, encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with, those that you go to school with, those that you work for, if they are doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.